Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 27, the book of Romans, chapter 11, continued. You know, every now and then, a lesson comes along that compels me to preach as much as I teach. I don't mind doing that. And this is one of those. Paul has spent the first 12 verses of Romans chapter 11 summarizing some significant theological principles that he has been carefully constructing since chapter 1. His first theological principle is that despite the high level of sinning and lack of faithfulness that has been demonstrated by Israel and it's obvious to any observer oddly enough God has not cast aside or rejected the Jewish people as his chosen elect as we might imagine he would this bogus claim by some Christian denominations that God has rejected his people Israel is what has led to the rampant anti-Semitism that has been present for centuries. It is the German Lutheran Church that has led the way in modern times by claiming that God's justification for abandoning his Old Testament people, the Hebrews, and bringing on board as a replacement a new and different people in the New Testament, Gentile Christians, the justification for all that is the Jews killed Jesus. Now while anyone who's read the Gospels can rightfully complain that many Jews, especially the Jewish religious, religious leadership, were complicit in Yeshua's crucifixion, it was Gentile Romans who actually whipped him, nailed him to that wooden cross, and brutally executed him. Nonetheless, whoever wins that ongoing debate over who is most responsible for killing Christ achieves nothing because both sides are arguing about a red herring. Paul has been explaining that what the Jews, the Hebrews, have done, good or bad, in the recent or the ancient past has no bearing on the special status that God gave to them. How can that be? Because God made his promise to Israel going all the way back to Abraham many centuries before there even was an Israel. And that promise was they are his elect based on His grace and His mercy and not on Israel's merit or their faithfulness. Whether the Jews bear the full weight of Christ's death or partial responsibility or none is completely irrelevant. It plays no role in God's decision to maintain His acceptance of them as His chosen people.
The second theological principle that Paul has elucidated is that those Jews whose hearts became stone-like against accepting Yeshua as their Messiah experienced that hardening partly because of their own choice to behave wickedly and unfaithfully but also partly because of a choice by God that affected their minds and thus prevented them from accepting Christ. In fact, Paul pointed out that a kind of divine intervention which includes hardening of hearts was nothing new. And he used Deuteronomy 29 to prove it. Then he used the prophet Isaiah to point out that it was prophesied that this pattern of God hardening rebellious hearts for his own purposes was going to continue. Thus, it ought to come as no surprise to anyone that in Paul's day, God would harden the hearts of some Jews who were refusing to accept Yeshua as their Messiah. I want to say this a little differently. Paul is saying to Jews and Gentiles in Rome that God hardening even his own people is not, not only a thing of the distant past of Israel's history, as in Moses' day 13 centuries earlier, but such a divine hardening, in fact, remains as an active tool in God's toolbox. The proof that Paul offered is all those Jews who refused to trust in their Messiah who have had their hearts hardened by God in response. Now, if you're paying attention to what Paul is saying, then such a claim is pretty sobering. Under certain circumstances, God hardens Gentile hearts, such as with Pharaoh, and he hardens Jewish hearts, as with non-believing Jews of New Testament times. I don't know about you, but this characteristic of God I'm not especially fond of it. I, of course, accept that it's his choice and his sovereign will to do as he wills it. But that doesn't mean I have to be comfortable with it. See, this is where various and competing theological doctrines with names like predestination and predetermination stand in opposition to other theological doctrines with names like prescience and free will. And of course, as humans do, unyielding stances are taken on both sides of the issue. And whereas over the past several centuries, predestination and predetermination have dominated Christian theology, especially in Europe, in more modern times, free will and prescience. That, in other words, God pre-knows what we're going to do or going to choose. This has gained steam, mostly because Westerners just don't like an attribute of God that takes our individual destiny out of our own hands. So the goal of the one side is to make God into a stern and rigid taskmaster 
who, like a typical European monarch, uses humans as little more than disposable pawns in a cosmic chess match. While the goal of the other side is to make God a little more like a congenial and cooperative genie who is there to make our wishes and dreams come true if only we'll approach him correctly. Paul leaves such a matter as a mystery. He makes no attempt to defend this difficult characteristic of God. Paul merely tells us that on the one hand, our own free will plays an enormous role in our destiny. But on the other hand, so does God's divine intervention. And his intervention is certainly not necessarily for each person's immediate benefit. Often there is a much larger picture in play for which we have no idea. But rather than keep it to himself, in this particular case, God chose to reveal the surprising reason that he hardened the hearts of many of his own elect against their own Jewish Messiah, Yeshua. So the third theological principle that we learned from Paul is stated in Romans 11, verse 11. Where it says, in that case, I say, isn't it that they have stumbled with the result that they are permanently fallen away? Heaven forbid, quite the contrary. It's by means of their stumbling that the deliverance has come to the Gentiles in order to provoke them to jealousy. Just to be clear, they, the they that have stumbled are the hardened Jews, and the them who will be provoked to jealousy are those same hardened Jews. So God reveals that as strange as it may seem, He reached down from heaven, He intentionally hardened the hearts of thousands, millions of His own elect in order that the gospel would be taken to the Gentiles who were not His elect. But, this was so Gentiles could be saved. But then the strangeness of God's decision doesn't stop there. The final few words of verse 11 say, in order to provoke them, the hardened Jews, to jealousy. So, God has intentionally hardened the hearts of the majority of Jews in order that Gentiles can be saved in huge numbers. But that too had a divine purpose. The now saved Gentiles have been given salvation for the express purpose of provoking to jealousy all those Jews God hardened. So that they too will be saved. Now I call this phenomenon the circle of salvation. But Paul has even more to say on this subject in Romans 11. Now up to now and for the past few chapters, at the very least it's chapter 7, Paul has been aiming his monologue primarily at Jews. But now in Romans 11.13 he abruptly 
changes up and turns primarily towards Gentiles. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. And we are going to read from verse 13 to the end of the chapter. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, the page is 1415. 1415. Romans chapter 11, starting to read at verse 13. However, to those of you who are Gentiles, I say this. Since I myself am an emissary sent to the Gentiles, I make known the importance of my work in the hope that somehow I may provoke some of my own people to jealousy and save some of them. For if their casting Yeshua aside means reconciliation for the world, what will their accepting him mean? It'll be life from the dead. Now if the challah offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole loaf. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, a wild olive, were grafted in among them and have become equal shares in the rich root of the olive tree, then don't boast as if you're better than the branches. However, if you do boast, remember, you're not supporting the root. The root's supporting you. So you'll say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. True, but so what? They were broken off because of their lack of trust. However, you keep your place only because of your trust. So don't be arrogant. On the contrary, be terrified. For if God didn't spare the natural branches, he certainly won't spare you. So take a good look at God's kindness and his severity. On the one hand, severity towards those who fell off, but on the other hand, God's kindness towards you, provided you maintain yourself in that kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Moreover, the others, if they do not persist in their lack of trust, will be grafted in, because God is able to graft them back in. For if you were cut out, of what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? For brothers, I want you to understand this truth, which God formerly concealed but has now revealed, so that you won't imagine that you know more than you actually do. It is that stoniness to a degree has come upon Israel until the Gentile world enters its fullness and that it is in this way that all Israel will be saved. As the Tanakh, the Old Testament says, out of Zion will come the Redeemer. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. With respect to the good news, they are hated for your sake. But with respect to being chosen, they are loved. For the patriarch's sake. For God's free gifts and his calling are irrevocable. Just as you yourselves were disobedient to God before, but have received mercy now because of Israel's disobedience, so also Israel has been disobedient now, so that by you showing them the same mercy that God has shown to you, they too may now receive God's mercy. 
For God has shut up all mankind together in disobedience in order that he might show mercy to all. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How inscrutable are his judgments. How unsearchable are his ways. For who has known the mind of Adonai? Who has been his counselor? Or who has given him anything and made him pay it back? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. The opening words of verse 13 make it clear that Paul is refocusing his thoughts towards the Gentiles of the congregation in the city of Rome. And now that we've read those remaining verses of chapter 11, we can see that from the far view, Paul's purpose is to make sure that Gentile believers understand that just because God hardened so many Jews in order the Gentiles would be saved, Gentiles should not misunderstand God's motives for doing so. The goal all along remains the same, that all Israel would be saved. That's the goal. Verses 13 and 14 have Paul explaining that even though he indeed is an emissary to Gentiles, he is and remains a Jew. He refers to the Jews as my own people. So Paul continues to stay firmly identified with the Jewish people. Now for most of us, that seems self-evident. But to much of the church, this comes as a pretty big surprise. Most often when Paul is depicted in a painting such as the one in this picture, what does he look like? Look like a Jew to you? No, he looks more like a European. Spanish, English, French. Often he has a thin, pale face, a pointy mustache, and he's tall and slender. I have seen precious few depictions of Paul as an olive-skinned, dark-haired, brown-eyed Hebrew. This is not by accident. There is a subconscious perspective of Paul that has been ingrained within Christianity for at least 18 centuries. That since Paul is the apostle to the, to the Gentiles, well then surely he must have re-identified himself more as a Gentile than his original Jewish heritage. Never mind that at every turn he speaks of the Jews as his people or his brethren, or even carefully recount, recounts his personal heritage, both from a national and a religious viewpoint as a Jew, and from a tribal viewpoint as a Benjamite, in Philippians 3.5, he even adds to that by saying he's a Pharisee. In Philippians 3, verses 4 and 5, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for putting confidence in human qualifications, I have better grounds. A 
Brit Milah, a circumcision on the eighth day, by birth, belonging to the people of Israel, from the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew speaker with Hebrew-speaking parents, in regard to the Torah, a Parush, a Pharisee. Those are Paul's words. So let's put aside this nonsensical fantasy that Paul was some kind of a convert to a Gentile. Or that he even had any Gentile DNA in him whatsoever. He was a Jew through and through and he proudly proclaimed a long Israelite heritage on several occasions as recorded by his own hand in the New Testament. What he is explaining in verse 14 is that even though he has just said that it is God's purpose for saved Gentiles to provoke unsaved Jews to jealousy and hopefully redemption, Paul at least partly agreed to this thankless task of evangelizing Gentiles because that put him at odds with most of his own people in order that he too, he says, might provoke Jews to jealousy and thus urge them on to salvation in Yeshua. That is, Paul, the Messianic Jew, provoking to jealousy traditional Jews. In verse 15, he expounds upon his reasoning by saying that if Jews casting aside their Messiah means reconciliation with God for the world, the Jews in much larger numbers finally accepting Yeshua will be an even greater impact. Now please notice Paul's use of the term world. World. World here means non-Jews. World means Gentiles. So here we get a very good definition of what Paul means by the world in his letters. The world for Paul usually means unsaved Gentiles, pagans. So for Paul, the world is set over and against the Jewish people in the sense of non-Jews versus Jews and in the sense of worshippers of pagan gods versus worshippers of the God of Israel. But even more, once a Gentile becomes saved, he graduates out of the world into the kingdom of God. So for Paul, a believer, including a Gentile believer, is no longer part of the world. Where would Paul have derived his understanding of what the world is? Now while I have no proof of it, I think it must have been something that the risen Yeshua showed to him. Likely through another believer in Damascus when Paul was first selected and was recovering from his blindness and no doubt trauma of meeting the resurrected Messiah. Now, as believers, you know, it's common for us, isn't it, to speak of the world. But what does Christ mean by it? What does the New Testament in general mean 
by the term the world. And where as believers do we fit in it? Here is what Christ had to say at length in a recorded prayer that Yeshua prayed to the Father. This is taken from John chapter 17. I'm going to read 18 verses out of it, 1 through 18, so that you can get all the context. <clears throat> John 17, 1. After Yeshua had said these things, he looked up towards heaven and said, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. Just as you gave him authority over mankind so that he might have eternal life to all those you have given to him. And eternal life is this, to know you, the one true God, and him who you sent, Yeshua the Messiah. I glorified you on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me alongside yourself. Give me the same glory I had with you before the world existed. I made your name known to the people you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now, they know that everything you have given me is from you. Because the words you gave to me, I have given to them when they have received them. They have really come to know that I came from you. And they have come to trust that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given to me, because they are yours. Indeed, all I have is yours. All you have is mine, and in them I have been glorified. Now I am no longer in the world. They are in the world, but I'm coming to you. Holy Father, guard them by the power of your name which you have given to me so that they may be one just as we are. When I was with them, I guarded them by the power of your name, which you have given to me. Yes, I kept watch over them, and not one of them was destroyed, except the one that was meant for destruction, so that the Tanakh might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you. I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have my joy made complete in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world hated them, because they do not belong to the world, just as I myself do not belong to the world. I don't ask you to take them out of the world, but to protect them from the evil one. They do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. Set them apart for holiness by means of the truth, your word is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Now clearly the term the world has a double meaning here. On the one hand, the world is meant as the secular people of our day mean it. It's the total human population of planet Earth and everything that accompanies it. But on the other hand, from a spiritual perspective, the world is the unsaved. So clearly, Gentiles are part of the world until we become believers, and then we're not. 
Just as clearly, Jews are not and have never been part of the world as God sees it. And yet, since Yeshua's advent, Jews are not as distinct from the world as they may have once thought they were. Thus, Jews and Gentile believers are seen by our Lord as separate from the world. And therefore, that is how we're to see ourselves. Can you do that? You know, folks, this is not an easy place to be. So, struggle is to be expected. We are truly hanging suspended, no longer of the world, but here we are still in the world. Not yet in heaven, but yet being asked to live a heavenly lifestyle while still in this world. The good news is, our Savior lived in that same condition as we do. So he understands our predicament and he can relate to us. And he is our advocate in heaven. We couldn't have a better one. Well, in verse 16, Paul is going to use two metaphors to tell the Gentiles that despite their good fortune of being marked for salvation by God, hardened Israel still has a future with Jehovah. The imagery that Paul employs is, first of all, a baked product made of grain, and it is taken from the book of Numbers, chapter 15. In Numbers 15, 18 through 21, we read this. Speak to the people of Israel and tell them, When you enter the land where I am bringing you and eat bread produced in the land, you are to set aside a portion as a gift for Adonai. Set aside from your first dough a cake as a gift. Set it aside as you would set aside a portion of the grain from the threshing floor. From the first dough, you will give Adonai a portion of it as a gift throughout all your generations. So Paul is using the theological principle of first fruits to develop his thought now. Keep that in mind. This is about the first fruits dynamic. Numbers 15 speaks of offering up to God a piece of bread dough that is made from grain that was grown and harvested in the promised land. Even to this day, some Jews, when baking challah bread, that's that special bread that by tradition is made for Shabbat, they will pinch off a piece of the dough and they throw it into the fire. However, nowhere in Numbers is it implied that the remaining portion of the dough becomes holy, as Paul says. Is this an error in Paul's understanding of the Torah? Probably not. One of the difficulties in interpreting the New Testament, besides the fact that we have Hebrew thought attempting to be communicated in the Greek language, is that the writings of the New Testament are not theological, theological treatises that have been vetted by fellow Hebrew scholars. 
or have they been written for academics for the modern Western world? They were written using common Jewish cultural terms and idioms and expressions and manners of speaking that were usual and standard for Jewish communities of that era. Much too often, using much too little knowledge of Judaism and Jewish culture of that era, very good modern commentators will try to attach a greater level of precision to the words that are meant. As an example, in the Gospels, we, whenever we find Yeshua either in or on his way to Jerusalem for the three spring feasts of Passover, Matzah, and First Fruits, the New Testament accounts will interchange the terms Passover and Matzah. That is, while technically Passover is the first of the three feasts, and it's only a one-day feast, it's common in the New Testament to call the entire series of three spring feasts Passover. Just as it is common to refer to the entire series of the three as Matzah. The writer is not confused. It was merely the standard way of speaking among people, lay people, among Jews in that era. We find the same issue with the terms holy and unclean in the New Testament. Those two terms indeed do have, on the one hand, very precise definitions. But on the other hand, they're often used in broad and imprecise ways because that's how the common Jews of that day used them. For instance, technically, unclean is a term that is only used to describe something that is otherwise completely permissible to eat, wear, touch, etc. But that otherwise permissible item can't be used due to some kind of an error in its handling. The item has been made ritually unclean. As an example, a piece of lamb to eat is permissible for food. However, <clears throat> if it's not handled properly, perhaps not enough blood was drained from it. Then the lamb is now rendered unclean. So what is normally permissible now can't be used. On the other hand, if an item is considered as prohibited, then how it's handled is a moot subject. It doesn't matter. For instance, a pig cannot ever be food. I don't care how you handle it. Technically, a pig is not unclean. It's merely prohibited to eat under any circumstance. It is not food, no matter how it's handled. So whether something is prohibited or something is permissible but it's been mis mishandled and now rendered unclean, what's the final result? It can't be used. Either way, 
Thus, in the New Testament, we'll find that sometimes the term unclean means ritually impure, according to the Law of Moses. Other times, it just means it can't be touched or used. In a very general way. Why it's unclean, why you can't, doesn't matter. It's just unclean. The term holy also became used in a similar fashion in the New Testament. There is the technical meaning for holy that means set apart for God in accordance with the law of Moses. It can even mean that only priests can partake of whatever it might be. But in common speech among Jews, it came to mean something that the lay person informally dedicated to God. Or it's assigned a religious connotation even if it has nothing to do with any commandment or regulation from the law of Moses. The term holy is used in both of those ways in the New Testament. I want to give you an illustration. Christians are fond to say about a person that they admire that they are a godly man or a woman. We don't mean this from a technical sense that they're godlike or really have any direct connection to God at all. Rather, it just means that they are good, upright people. They not only profess to be religious, but they live a life that reflects strong moral standards that exemplify good character, similar to what we can find in the Bible. That's what we mean by that. Now, very likely, Paul meant holy in this sense in reference to the lump and the whole loaf. To the challah, to the peace, to the whole loaf. Because certainly otherwise, he's simply incorrect about his claim that the whole loaf becomes ritually holy because a small piece of the dough is ritually dedicated to God as the Torah prescribes. If that's the way it is, he's just wrong. But I don't think he's wrong. I think he's just using a common way of speaking. So all Paul was apparently getting at is that if a portion of the whole is holy before God, then it can be assumed that the entire portion is also opposed, is also holy, say as opposed to unclean. Then he adds yet another metaphor with the use of the olive tree. Now this is a real favorite among modern Messianic Jews. He says <clears throat> that if a tree's roots are holy, then its branches must also be holy since they're all parts of the same whole. All parts of a tree receive the same nourishment from the same source, its roots. Paul is not talking about any kind of actual Torah-defined holiness. He is simply meant as a broad illustration. So we don't want to get too technical. We must not try to dissect his examples too far. But rather, just get the general idea he's trying to impart that all members of a whole are infected with either the same holiness or they're all defiled with the same uncleanness. Can't have half of each. 
A tree whose roots are unclean cannot have holy branches. And a tree whose roots are holy, well, they can't have unclean branches. However, the branches can be removed from the tree if they become diseased. They can be pruned away before they infect the other branches or maybe even eventually kill the roots. So what is the whole loaf of bread an illustration of? What is the olive tree with its branches and roots illustrating? Both are illustrations of the same thing. The Jewish people, or more technically, the Hebrew people in total, since the Jews are but a remnant of the original Hebrew people. After introducing these two illustrations of verse 16, in verse 17, Paul takes the metaphor of the olive tree a little bit further when he speaks of grafting a wild olive tree into the trunk of a cultivated olive tree. The wild olive represents Gentiles. The cultivated olive represents Jews. So the image is of something somewhat similar, but not quite the same. The wild olive that gets grafted into something that has been carefully cultivated and cared for by the gardener. Now I've heard horticulturalists try to tear this story apart with scientific tests and methods. Paul was not a horticulturist. He wasn't even a farmer so far as we know. This passage was not intended as a lesson on proper tree grafting. It was merely a general word picture for use by people of an ancient world where most worked in agriculture at one task or another and rudimentary grafting was in common use. Thus continuing with agricultural terms, Paul warns that the wild olive derives a benefit from being grafted into that cultivated olive. It receives that same care and nourishment now that the cultivated olive receives since the wild olive has been made artificially part of the cultivated olive. But the wild olive doesn't ever convert and become a cultivated olive. It doesn't replace the cultivated olive. And the wild olive should never think that it does. You with me? Therefore, using the grammatical technique called personification, assigning a human attribute to something that isn't human, the wild olive should not boast about its good fortune of getting attached to that cultivated olive tree. And especially it should not think that it can become better than the original, natural, cultivated olive tree. What's the main reason for the wild olive being cautioned to not get proud? 
because the wild olive branches have been grafted in to where some of the natural branches of the cultivated tree were taken off. They were removed. And why were those cultivated olive branches removed from their own tree? Because they were found to have no trust. No trust. And clearly, since it is trust in Messiah's faithfulness that Paul has been preaching since chapter 1, this is what he's speaking about here. It's that trust. Therefore, if some wild olives, Gentiles, are grafted, grafted into the cultivated Jewish olive tree, they shouldn't expect a different treatment or a different outcome than the natural branches received. That is, the Gentile branches will stay attached. These believing Gentile branches will stay attached, but only so long as that trust remains sincere, active, and alive. The moment that trust ends, the wild olive branches, the wild Gentile believing olive branches, like the original cultivated branches, they're pruned off that tree by God and removed from their source of life and sustenance. There have been never-ending debates in theological circles about the roots of this cultivated olive tree and what they represent and what their nourishment is. It is usual in Christian circles to say that the roots are Jesus. Sorry, that just doesn't work for all kinds of reasons. First of all, the cultivated olive tree is clearly the Jewish people in general, not believers per se. Second of all, the natural branches of the tree that remain on the tree are believing Jews. But the trunk and the root system have always been Jewish. Hebrew. Third of all, the roots of the Jewish people are the patriarchs. But fourth, what makes the patriarchs the patriarchs is the covenant of Abraham. Without that covenant, there is no father Abraham. Without that covenant, there is no line of promise to hand down to Isaac, for Isaac to hand down to Jacob. Without the Abrahamic covenant, there is no division of the world into Jews, or rather Hebrews, and Gentiles. It simply doesn't happen. And further, whenever Yeshua is described in the Bible from a horticultural perspective, he is not a root. He is a shoot or he is a vine. He himself has a root that he springs from. And Yeshua's root is Jacob. Through the tribe of Judah, the clan of Jesse, described in horticultural terms as Jesse the stump, and the family of King David. So here is the unmistakable theological principle that Paul makes. 
one that most of the institutional church has denied and hated for 1800 years. Gentile believers, Christians, exist and are sustained spiritually only by being artificially attached to a strong Jewish source. It's self-fed from the covenant of Abraham. Israel's covenants with God are what makes Israel, Israel. And what makes Gentiles saved and forgiven is the goal of those same covenants. Yeshua of the family of King David. Christ, the Jew. So when some elements of Christianity demand that the Old Testament and everything it represents is abolished, what is being demanded is that Paul's cultivated olive tree that we as believers are grafted into, the place where we receive our life, our sustenance, they insist that we gets cut down. They insist the root system gets dug up and destroyed. Man, that's spiritual suicide. So, as alien branches that have been by God's grace grafted into that natural cultivated olive tree, the Hebrew tree that God has been cultivating for millennia, what should be the attitude of Gentile Christians? What ought, to our, ought our attitude be? Paul has an answer. Should it be confident? Should we be arrogant? Should we be superior? Paul gives us that answer in verse 21. Don't be arrogant. On the contrary, be terrified. Why should we be terrified? Verse 21. Because if God didn't spare the natural branches, He's not going to spare you. Alien branch. If God was willing to prune off branches that grew naturally from that tree that He had so carefully and lovingly cultivated for century after century after century, but some of those branches became diseased, they stopped trusting. How much quicker is He going to be to cut off those formerly alien branches? that show signs of the same disease of non-trust. It was God's gift of mercy to foreign branches, not to the natural tree that we were grafted in. Paul says in verse 22 that God has two sides to his character to be aware of. A side of kindness towards those who trust. A side of severity for those who stop trusting. How do you stop trusting if you never trusted in the first place? I'll put another dent in the unscriptural doctrine of once saved, always saved. Here is yet another example of God warning who? Warning believers 
to maintain that trust that saved us or we're going to be removed from God's covenants and we're going to be destroyed. Question, who are the wild olives that are grafted into that cultivated tree? Are they just any and all Gentiles? Have all pagans been grafted into the olive tree? How about an answer? No, of course not. That's ridiculous. It's absurd on its face. Or are they only believing Gentiles? They're there because of their trust. I mean, it's self-evident. It's only believers. Why would God cut off non-believing Jews who don't trust and replace them with non-believing Gentiles who don't trust? It doesn't even make any sense. Besides, as Paul says, the only reason the Gentiles get grafted in is because of what? Our trust. So, is the warning that we should maintain that trust or we're going to be cut off that tree just a hypothetical situation that cannot possibly happen? The once saved, always saved doctrine says it is. Don't worry about it. None of that stuff you're warned about can ever happen. It's just all hypothetical something. In fact, once saved, always saved, and here it say that every warning in the New Testament, and man, there's several of them, of a believer falling away or the Lord refusing to recognize them or blocking their entry into the kingdom of God can't actually happen. So by that reasoning then, here in Romans 11, we have yet another. And this time, it's Paul who's making another hollow threat. Now if such a thing is impossible, why are we supposed to be terrified of being cut off? If it's just not possible. I mean, did we just get there accidentally? Why are we to strive to remain in God's kindness through our trust if under no circumstance can we let go of our trust and our salvation is revoked? If you don't like it, then please tear chapter 11 out of your Bibles. <laughs> but then comes the part that no doubt Paul was so very anxious to get to. He says this now in verses 23 and 24. Moreover, the others, if they don't persist in their lack of trust, they can be grafted in. Because God is able to graft them back in. Because if you were cut out of what is by nature a wild olive tree and you were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated tree, how much more will those natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? Paul says that those hardened Jews, those cut off branches, will be grafted back into their own tree if only they will finally trust. So the hardening that God put upon His people will end. And they will be offered their place back as a branch on that cultivated olive tree because it's their tree in the first place. Stony hearts 
turned into soft hearts that trust. Jews that had their hearts hardened towards Messiah finally become believers and are saved. Gosh, where have we heard this? Ezekiel 36, verses 24 to 28. For I will take you from among the nations, I will gather you from all the countries, and I will return you to your own soil. Then I'll sprinkle clean, then I will sprinkle clean water on you. Then you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your uncleanness, from all of your idols. I will give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit inside of you. I will take that stony heart out of your flesh. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit inside you. I will cause you to live by my laws. Whoops. And respect my rulings and obey them. You will live in the land I gave to your ancestors. You will be my people. I will be your God. And we'll continue with Romans chapter 11 next time.